sermon text this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, uh, chapter 8, verses 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. You can find it on page 844 in the Bibles at your feet. You remember the history just prior to the Gospels, right? Right at the end of the Old Testament, very quickly, just to remind us this morning, um, the people of Israel had been defeated by enemy nations. You remember Israel and Judah um, had the, the conquering nations of Assyria and then Babylon come in and wipe them out and take them into slavery and exile. There was a, a promise during this time that they would then return from exile, and they do, right? At the end of the Old Testament, the people of God return to the promised land from exile. But what should have been a glorious return only left these people weak and vulnerable. Remember that? The people of God had become servants, vassals to these foreign powers, stronger world powers around them. Uh, They had become a virtual football in the middle of world politics. And then, as we remember, 400 years followed of just silence. They were waiting for God to do something. They were waiting, clinging to their identity as the children of God. And all that time, they they kind of felt as though God had abandoned them. Like they, they came back, but God had not come back with them. The Lord had abandoned their temple, had abandoned their worship, had abandoned their nation, and now they just served these foreign overlords. But we also remember that the people of God during this time had a promise to cling to. One day, from the line of the great King David of long ago, a new king would arise. The final, ultimate king of Israel. He would come in power and majesty. He would come, they thought, and and finally throw off the overlords, right? Finally restore dominance to the people of God, rid Israel of their foreign taskmasters, restore their place on the world stage. This king would come, bring the people of God into prominence over the nations. This was the Messiah that they were waiting for. This Messiah, they thought, would reign triumphant, king of kings. His coming would be glorious, majestic. And so there's this, over this course of this 400 years, and especially around the time of of Jesus coming onto the scene, there was kind of this fever pitch of glorious messianic expectation that, that someday this Messiah would come. And, and it's into this expectation, it's into this culture that uh, a simple man was born who was a little bit rough around the edges, guy who grew up in the region of Galilee, wasn't really anything special, just a fisherman, right? He was making his living um, out on the sea, probably smelled a little bit of the fish around him, His life was probably not all that glorious, but he had gotten used to it. He was making it in an unforgiving world. His name was Simon. We know him a little bit better as Peter. 
You remember Peter. You remember that Peter grew up in a world that was filled with whispers and rumors of the coming Messiah. And so for the people of Israel, these rumors, and, and, and for Peter, these rumors provided hope that maybe there was more to life than just fish and fishing nets. Maybe there was something else to hope for than this kind of small and difficult life that they were li- living. We know that rumors of the Messiah were, were in the air constantly, and, and some of them carried some weight, enough weight that they brought some followers into their train. We, we remember um, Gamaliel, don't we, in Acts 5, talking a little bit about this. Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel is speaking at the, the Sanhedrin, this trial of the apostles, and, and begins to speak about some of these false messiahs. And so in Acts 5, 30, uh, 36 and 37, it says, uh, Gamaliel says, for before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, and he drew away some of the people after him. And he too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. Rumors of the Messiah were everywhere. But, but now, at this moment, in, in the Gospel of Mark, in the Gospels, we, we see someone different show up on the scene. A man named Jesus. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's healing. He's proving by his miracles, by his authority, that he was something special. And this man, Jesus, we remember, had called on Peter. The simple fisherman called on Peter, of all people, to follow him. Jesus had made Peter one of his inner circle. He had taught Peter. He had taught the twelve some of the the hidden things, the, the things that he kept from the rest of the world. And Peter had a front row seat to this man's life, to this man's power, to this man's teaching and authority. They traveled throughout the region of Galilee together. And finally, in our passage this morning, they find themselves in a remote place called Caesarea Philippi. It's Gentile territory. It's, it's kind of away from the crowds of the Jews. And here at this moment, eight chapters in, there's, there's this question that's kind of hanging in the air between the disciples and Jesus. It's a question that had been building for months now. It's one that Peter had likely spent long sleepless nights debating, contemplating in his head. The question was this, who is this man? Who who really is this man? Could it be that Jesus is the Messiah? Or am I following another Theodos or Judas the Galilean? You can imagine the debate going on in Peter's mind and the among the disciples. Maybe even this morning for some of us in this room, that debate is raging hot in your own mind. Who is this man? Could it really be that he is all that he says that he is? And so here they are in Caesarea Philippi, and that question that's on everybody's mind becomes the question on Jesus's lips. And so we're going to read this together. Um, We're just going to take it in chunks. Um, We're going to begin with verses 27 through 29. So look there with me. 
And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Now the whole Gospel of Mark turns on this one moment. This is is that turning point in the entire narrative. See, up until now in Mark... This had only really been a question in the minds of his disciples. Not since Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of Mark, had Jesus been identified for who he was. Uh, Mark introduces his gospel by saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But then from that moment forward, Mark very intentionally just kind of remains silent on on the subject. For eight chapters almost, we're left to decide for ourselves, who is this man that Mark is presenting for us? And so as Mark tells the tale, um, we have, we've seen as we work through the gospel of Mark that Jesus' authority and that his power have been demonstrated. We've seen it in his miracles. We've seen his character revealed. Jesus' connection with God had been made clear. But now, for the first time since that very first verse, it came out that he wasn't just a prophet. He wasn't just some reincarnation of Elijah. He wasn't John the Baptist come back from the dead. This is not who Jesus is, but he is, in fact, the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah. And so when we consider what this meant for Peter, when he comes to that point of of decision, of declaration, of confession there at Caesarea Philippi, it it changes everything. To to say this changes everything. And so maybe maybe some of you are standing right where Peter was that day and, and you are ready to make that confession. Or maybe you're like some of the other disciples who were not as ready to be quite so bold as Peter, right? Because if it isn't him, if it's not him to say that he is, that would cost us everything, right? But oh man, if, if, if this is him, the more you learn about him, the more you want it to be him. Now, Peter had his whole life shaped by this deep and abiding expectation, just, just kind of in the, in the blood of his culture, the blood of his people. There was a deep and abiding expectation that someday, one day, the Messiah would come, and when that happened, the whole world would change. The expectation had found expression in these false messiahs, that, that hope was deep and strong. People saw it and found ways to, to make it happen, or so they thought. 
And it was the hope of not only uh, Peter, but his whole people. Everything rides on this coming Messiah. Everyone shares in this longing. And so we have to understand, as we approach this passage, that for hundreds of years, the people of God had reflected on this. What would it mean? What would it mean for the Messiah to come? What, What would it mean for him to really show up on the scene. And at this point in the history of Israel, that reflection, the expectation could be summed up in two words. Their expectation for the Messiah was triumphant king. Right? Triumphant king. This is who the Messiah will be. We saw uh, we saw some of that expectation set up for us in Psalm 2. It was power and authority that they expected. Nations bowing down, enemies scattered. And Peter was raised up in this expectation. And now he saw the locus of all of that hope and expectation in this man who had asked Peter to follow him. And he makes his confession. Peter recognizes that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. And now, now that the point has been made clear, the rest of the Gospel of Mark is taken up with explaining just exactly what does that actually mean. What exactly does that actually mean, that he is the Messiah? Have you ever had a a moment where you really thought that you knew what was going on? Like you were the authority in the room, and then all of a sudden a new piece of information came into view, or or you, you figured something else out about the situation, and you realized that actually you didn't have a clue what you were talking about. Just because we have confessed Jesus as Lord doesn't mean that we fully grasp what it means. Certainly, for Peter, this was the case. And so as Jesus begins to explain just exactly what Peter was confessing, all of the expectations of Peter, all of the expectations of the disciples, all of the expectations of the Jewish world were turned upside down. So let's hear what Jesus teaches us this Messiah business is really all about. Listen to Jesus as he begins to explain this in verses 30 and 31. Peter declares Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus responds in this way. Verse 30. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Verse 32, and he said this plainly. What does it mean that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah? Rejection. Suffering and death. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Sounds like just the kind of thing that anybody would sign up for. This whole Jesus the King is sure beginning to sound a little bit uncomfortable for his would-be followers. You can imagine the disciples just kind of shifting in their seats like, wait a minute, what? I mean, what about for us? How does this strike you? As we read this, is it confusing? Does it does it strike? Does it make you uncomfortable when Jesus says that he's going to have to suffer and die? 
or maybe we are so overexposed to the idea that it doesn't really strike us anymore. Maybe we're just so used to this idea that, that it doesn't hit us the way it once did. But this morning, we need to think about it. How many of us would have thought that the coronation of the king would have been achieved through his death? How opposed to our understanding of power is this display of divine might? Jesus is teaching something to us here that is vital for us to understand if we are going to truly understand what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. See, the power of the Christ is cross-shaped. The power of our king looks like a man who's broken and bleeding and suffocating on behalf of his subjects. Superiority looks like sacrifice in the kingdom of God. Power looks like humiliation. Authority looks like love. Victory looks like sacrifice. Life looks like death. It's, it's all upside down in this kingdom that we that we belong to. Every expectation is subverted. Hopes are turned upside down. Isn't that just so disappointing? Do you feel the disappointment of that? For Peter, you remember, this is not just disappointing. This is unacceptable. Right? This just didn't fit. Peter had these hopes, these dreams, the hopes and dreams that didn't just belong to him, but belong to all of his people and all of the world. And they're, they're, they're shattered by this idea to have spent all that time and all that mental energy wondering and debating, and could this really be the Messiah? And finally coming to the conclusion, yes, this is the Messiah, only to have Jesus say, well, I'm going to go and die now. Peter's like, no, this, this is not right. This is not what the Messiah is supposed to do. The Messiah means something for Peter, and and Jesus is about to throw it all down the drain. And, And Peter's like, you don't have any right to do this. You're the Messiah. You have to do what we expect you to do. And so Peter has one choice in his mind. He's got to take matters into his own hands, and he's got to make sure the mission of the Messiah doesn't go down the drain. Listen to verse 32. What did, what did Peter do? It says, and Peter took him aside. We take you aside, Jesus. And began to rebuke him. I mean, I, I, what are you doing, Peter? You, you just said that this is the Messiah. And now you're going you're gonna to take him aside and you're going to rebuke him? Hey, Jesus, I know, I know that you said you were the Christ and all, but look, I, th- I think you got a few details a little bit off about this whole thing. Let me, let me help you. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to us, right? But church, if we're honest with ourselves, how often, how often do we correct the path of the Messiah? Of course, you know what happens next. Verse 33. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How often the things of man cloud the mission of God among his people. How often we fixate on what we think the mission of Christ should be among us instead of allowing his mission to reshape us. Now, we've got to remember, hundreds of years of speculation had shaped the image of the Messiah for these people. Had shaped the Messiah into this picture of of this man who would fulfill their worldly dreams. Right? The Messiah would be what they wanted him to be. And the scriptures, the scriptures could easily be used and and looked at in, in just the right way to prove that they were right about who this Messiah was going to be. They had taken the the truths of the word of God and and kind of twisted and fashioned them so that they could hold up uh, their own hopes, their own desires, instead of letting the scriptures transform their understanding of who the Messiah would be. This happened for the people of Israel over hundreds of years of expectation. But church, I I think it's happened to us too, hasn't it? We've had 2,000 years to refashion the image of the Messiah. 2,000 years to, to take the scriptures and to make them serve our ends. Have we remained faithful to the scriptures in that time? One of, the, one of the issues that I think that we face in our modern expression of Christianity is this very issue. Instead of shaping ourselves around the image of the Messiah in Scripture, we have shaped Jesus into our own image. We have taken the Savior that we are presented with in the Bible and we're, we're asking him to fulfill our desires instead of asking him to define our desires. There's a big difference. So we want the Lord to fit and affirm our ideas of right and true instead of to correct us and to mold us. Instead of asking what our Lord's mission is, we've let him know what we think it should be. Pretty easy for us to say, let's forget about this rejection and suffering and death. That's Let's kind of set that aside. Let's not worry about that part. The Christian message, after all, should be positive, upbeat, uplifting, full of joy, not sacrifice, right? What do blood and triumph have to do with one another? So we hear the gospel reshaped to underpin our own self-esteem to facilitate our American dream, to prop up our view of what the world should be like. And so church, this is why we need a fresh encounter with the Jesus of the Bible. This is why we've got to be saturated in the scriptures. We have to allow them to speak for themselves. The Messiah, Jesus tells us, must suffer and die. Why? Because ours is a God of both love and justice. His justice demands that sin be destroyed, that it be eradicated from his people and his world, for our good, by the way. It must be destroyed. The price must be paid. But you know what his love says? His love says, I am the one 
to take it to the grave. Church, the slavery of this world is not a slavery to foreign powers, ultimately, but it's a slavery to the powers of sin and Satan. Our overlords are not the nations. Our sinfulness demands the life of a perfect Savior. And so our King is coronated through his suffering on our behalf. He takes on the plight of his people. He faces it for us. He becomes our representative, our champion. He faces down the enemy. He becomes the propitiation. He becomes the substitute in our place. And so Jesus, in this moment, just straight up calls Peter out. Right? Can you imagine a moment ago, here's Peter, um, probably feeling very full of himself, declaring, confessing, you are the Messiah. And now, like a slap in the face, this Messiah has just called him Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Why? Because you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, the mind of God is on much greater things. Not some struggle with flesh and and blood, but with principalities and powers. And so for the Messiah, power looks like humiliation. Authority has to look like love. Victory has to be found in sacrifice. And life can only be found through death. But church, what's true of the Messiah isn't only true for him. It is true for us as well. And so he goes on. Look at verses 34 through 38. So he's just said this to Peter, and then he calls the crowd. It says, in calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose or would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. And when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So how do we receive the benefits of Jesus' death for us? Church, there are benefits. How do we receive those benefits? Jesus tells us that we must die too. Our priorities have to be turned upside down in line with the kingdom's priorities. Because the priorities of the world, priorities of our own hearts, stand in direct opposition to the priorities of the kingdom. It's not enough just to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. We have to know what it is that we're confessing. Faith is more than just a a verbal statement or some formulaic prayer. Faith is a declaration of allegiance to a crucified king. It's a statement of identification with the suffering Savior. It's turning your back on the world and on your own entrenched desires, even your own worldview, in order to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And and when we do that, 
we will join in suffering. When we stand opposed to the world, it will cost us our lives. When we follow Christ, we must die to ourselves. Give up our vision in favor of his. Rejoice in the knowledge that he is so much better, so much wiser, so much sweeter in the end. Salvation is a gift that's freely offered to us, but our faith will lead us into suffering and death. Battle with our own flesh, with the dominion of the devil. And so what does this mean for us, church? Um, it's It's a moment of examination. And so let me give us just three questions to ask ourselves this morning. The first question is the one that Jesus asked. Who do you say that I am? Maybe this is a debate that's been raging in you for a long time. And this morning, Jesus is asking you that question. Who do you say that I am? You've seen the evidence. You've heard the witnesses. Now, who do you say that I am? Are you ready to declare allegiance to this king? I mean, if if that is you today, if you're right there and you're ready to declare allegiance to the king, don't allow your fears and your attachments to to keep you back from the king of glory. He loves you. He shed his own blood for you to make you his own. You're not going to find a better king. You're not going to find a better king in this world, and certainly not in yourself. So trust him. If that's you today, I would ask you to come talk to me or talk to Caleb or or Tim or one of the members of this church. The second question that we need to examine in ourselves today is this. Maybe, Maybe you've declared allegiance, but what have you declared allegiance to? Have you declared allegiance to the crucified and suffering Messiah? Or have you declared allegiance to a Messiah of your own making? Put it another way, have, have I been so ashamed, as Jesus put it, of this bloody gospel of Jesus Christ that I've kind of taken that gospel and I've scrubbed it and I've polished it and I've dressed it up until it looks pleasing to my eyes and, and to the eyes of the people around me? Is that what I've done? Or am I letting Jesus be who he says he is? Am I stepping into that suffering. For Peter, his conception of the Messiah had been shaped by a culture that had placed all sorts of false expectations on who that Messiah would be, what he would do, how he would do it. I'm afraid that our culture has done the same thing for us. Is your faith a cultural creation, even a Christian cultural creation? Is it an image of yourself or is it faith in something more than the fake Christs fashioned by our world and our own minds. A good litmus test for this. If the Messiah has never challenged your preconceptions of who you thought he ought to be, he probably isn't the Messiah of Scripture. A Messiah who is never different from our expectations can only be a Messiah who exists only in our own minds. Has he ever challenged you? And finally, a third question for us this morning. Though salvation costs nothing, has your faith cost you anything? 
Have you ever had to sacrifice for the kingdom? If not, maybe you've declared allegiance. Maybe you've even understood. But are you following him? Are you walking the path that he walked first for us? We have to die to ourselves. We have to die to our own preconceived notions, our own culture, our own world. But we find so much abundance in life in Christ. Church, as we wrap up this sermon this morning, I want you to hear the hope of this message. I've given you some questions. Now I want you to hear the hope. If you have placed your faith in this crucified Savior, if you've done this, if you belong to him, if you have stepped in to suffering for the sake of the cross, those battles that you've engaged in against the flesh, against the world, there's a promise here in these words. There is an encouragement here. Your suffering, your sacrifice is serving to unite you with Christ. You are experiencing his suffering, being united with him. Rejoice in that. Um, the Gospel of Mark was, was most likely written for the church in Rome. And, and as I think about this passage, I think about what it must have meant for the believers in Rome to hear these words. You remember what was going on with them? They were suffering. They were being beaten, imprisoned, tortured, killed for their faith. But Jesus is saying to them right here, your suffering is not in vain. This suffering is a participation in the cross-shaped kingdom of God. Their suffering is a, a part of being in an upside-down kingdom. There's a reason for it. Standing with their crucified king. And suffering, church, is not the end. Verse 31, you remember and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. Church crucifixion ends in resurrection. Death ends in life. Whoever loses his life for my sake will, and the gospels will save it. This is, this is the invitation to us. In the end, Jesus is going to reign triumphant. That picture from Psalm 2, this idea that the, that the Jews had in their minds wasn't all wrong. He will reign triumphant, and he has invited us to be with him. Our passage this morning closes with these words in chapter 9, verse 1. He said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And we don't have time to dig into that very far this morning, but church, the kingdom has come and its power is on display. And this is an invitation this morning to join in that kingdom, to prioritize the priorities of the king, to let your power look like humble service, your authority look like love, your victory look like sacrifice, and your life look like death. And in the end, resurrection. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are grateful for your words. And we are humbled to realize that so often 
we, like Peter, are totally self-deceived. I pray this morning that by the power of your spirit, you would wake us up to those areas in our lives where we have reshaped and refashioned your word, your gospel, your kingdom to fit our desires. Would you help us to see the glory and the promise of joining in your suffering? Would you help us to submit our lives to your mission and not the other way around? You are so good to us, Lord. I pray this morning if there are any here who are just standing right there on the edge, ready to confess, but just afraid of giving it all up, that they would see that the treasures of your kingdom far outweigh, far outweigh anything in this life. Lord, work among your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.